From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. Today, we're still almost a year away from the crucial 2024 presidential election, but here in Georgia, some Republicans are already positioning themselves for races in 2026. I'm Patricia Murphy. A little more than a week ago, Democrat Andy Beshear won re-election as governor in Kentucky, a state that's as red as they come. We'll talk to the consultant who guided Bashir's campaign and who worked for Stacey Abrams' 2022 bid for governor in Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Governor Kemp urged an annual meeting of Atlanta's most important business leaders to put the full force of their support behind construction of the Atlanta Police and Fire Training Center. He called it crucial to the economic vitality of this city. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Well, it's great to be back in the studio with you guys after two weeks where I was in Washington and Miami. I get to see your smiling faces here in person instead of over a Zoom call. <laughs> and it's good to have you back in the studio with us in your suit and tie, Mr. Bluestein. Suit and tie, because Patricia, this morning I was at the Metro Atlanta Chamber annual meeting where we had some news today that we'll talk about later on. Yes, I feel like those are always newsmaker events, so they're well worth getting up before dawn to head on down there, which I'm proud of you, Greg. You did it. You know, Patricia is the <laughs> early riser. She's the one I, we often get Slack messages from at 4.30, yeah. 5.15. It's my own subtle way to abuse you. And meanwhile, I go to bed at like midnight, 1 a.m., so I'm the late. I'm, I sleep till 6 or 7. So. Hey, by, by the way, just to take our listeners behind the scenes for a moment, um, many people who follow you on social media know you are ubiquitous in your presence on social media. So I want to point out that even as the theme for this show was being played, you were taking a selfie of all of us in the studio just as we were getting set to start. I am such a millennial. (laughs) Well, coming up on today's show, we have a packed one. We're going to talk to the consultant who guided the recent wins for Democrats in Kentucky. He's from Georgia, by the way, and what he's expecting in 2024. And later, Governor Kemp drew a clear line between Atlanta's economy and the fate of the police training center this morning at the Metro Atlanta Chamber's annual breakfast. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hey there, I'm Stephen Schumacher, president of Only in Cartersville, Bartow. Need a break from election season? Escape the hustle and bustle in Cartersville, Georgia, where you can start your day with a rejuvenating hike at Red Top Mountain State Park and wind down at Timberline Glamping's newest location at Pine Acres on Lake Alatoona. Looking for more fun by the water? Check out Terminus Wake Park or grab a kayak and paddle down the Etowah River. Don't forget to mark your calendars now for Barbecue and Bruce Fest in downtown Cartersville on April 20th. Unwind where relaxation meets adventure and create memories that can be made only in Cartersville, Bartow. We are three years out from the 2026 election, and the maneuvering is already well underway from leading state Republicans. No one has been as aggressive as Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, who took an attack ad out against Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Patricia, I want to play you a snippet of this attack ad and then get your reaction. And so far, Brad Raffensperger has only worked 42 days this year. That's right, 42 days. And since 2021, he's been missing from work 70% of the time. If you or I did that, we'd be fired from our jobs. And Patricia, let me just note that this attack ad had a picture of Brad Raffensperger's uh, pic, uh, on a milk carton under the words missing. Yes. And all I could think was, well, boy, it sure feels like October of an election year. It does not feel like... Uh, November of three years away from the actual election. Um, 
I will say that behind the scenes, this kind of maneuvering is causing immense anxiety among Republicans, um, not because they really care what an ad says <laughs> three years away from an election, but because all of the 26 maneuvering um, feels like it is going to impact the policy decisions of Republicans three years away from a time they cannot anticipate. They know it. they have a huge election in 2024. All of them will be on the ballot. They don't really want to be on uh, on a set of agenda pieces that Burt Jones is using right now. They would really like to concentrate on what they've got in front of them. And of course, um, Greg, uh, you know that, and Patricia knows that uh, Governor Kemp has uh, offered a very sharp rebuke of this kind of very early efforts at uh, campaigning for 2026. He said, we have to focus on 2024. There's a crucial presidential election coming up. This is just a distraction. But but here's what I'm curious about. Um, at what point, how, how frequently do we expect that Burt Jones is going to be running ads pointing toward 2026 and just how tired are voters, TV viewers, likely to become if they are on the air frequently? Yeah, Bill, that's the question I've been getting a lot since reporting the story and a, and a few follow-ups this week is, what's the strategy here? Yeah. You know, why a year out from the 2024 election and, and three years out from 2026 are we already seeing these attack ads uh, aimed at a potential, but and if we should note, Burt Jones has made it sort of an open secret. He's looking at 2026. He said at several Republican gatherings, he's considering running for governor. Brad Raffensperger, after two election wins, is widely seen as a potential 2026 candidate too. And they're not alone. There's a number of other Democrats and Republicans we'll talk about who are also uh, considering that race. But why start this early? Um, you have the governor saying very loudly, it is a big mistake in his words for for candidates to be thinking or Republican politicians to be thinking about 2026 before the 2024 election is done. They're worried that it furthers that narrative that there's GOP fractures within the party's base. Um, And also voters aren't really paying attention yet to 2026 contests when you've got 2024 looming right around the corner. Well, it feels like Jones is really working to monopolize the lane. I don't really believe in lanes in politics, but I'm going to go ahead and use this metaphor anyway. That Trump voter far right lane, the GOP base, he wants to just go ahead and get out early as the leader of that group of voters that are so crucial to winning a GOP primary, no matter what year we're talking about. Um, Somebody else who could potentially be running for governor is Kelly Loeffler, who is very, very active right now with her own Greater Georgia voting group. And the data that Jones cites in that ad, in fact, was unearthed by Kelly Loeffler when she did an Open Records Act request about Brad Raffensperger's, literally his security badge swipes going in and out of the state capitol. Now, if you talk to Brad Raffensperger's team, they will say, uh, hello, he travels all over the state. He is not always in the capital. He goes around the state, feels a lot of pressure to continue to stand up for the integrity of Georgia elections. A lot of that is because um, Republicans, including Burt Jones, are saying they're not secure elections. And that has created an immense amount of anxiety among Republican voters about, does my vote count? Should we do paper ballots? It creates all of this anxiety around an election Um, which in 2020 was not stolen and in 2022 went off 
very, very smoothly. Yeah, essentially, they're saying he's the, the Raffensperger's office is saying he's trying to undo the damage uh, that that pro-Trump election deniers have done to the confidence in the election system. You know, I'm interested, Patricia, in your mentioning Kelly Leffler and how she's already making moves, more subtle moves in many ways than certainly Burt Jones. But I, it's it's fascinating to me that after lightning struck and she became Governor Kemp's appointed uh, U.S. senator to replace Johnny Isaacson, uh, but then lost her reelection bid. She sort of walked into uh, the, the Senate campaigns early on, I would suggest, as a real rookie. She, she did not have a, a significant political background. She was involved in major business uh, uh, with her husband, Jeff Sprecher. Um, but it feels to me like she has now really started thinking in a much more strategic way by starting her own uh, organization to cultivate voters and um, perhaps mount a bid for for office in 2026. And it's sort of, I, Patricia, my sense is we're kind of seeing the mature Ken, Kelly Leffler or the maturing of Kelly Leffler in politics. Yeah, I think that you know, she had been involved in politics a long time before she was appointed, but very much behind the scenes yes, as yes. a donor yep. um, with the Re- Republican National Committee, very close with Republicans here in the state, but never in the actual grassroots yeah. apparatus. And I agree. I think that she is now doing the kind of grassroots work that people typically do at the beginning of their political career, she had to skip all of that because mm-hmm. she didn't have to. She skipped all of that because she was appointed very quickly by Governor Brian Kemp when Johnny Isaacson said that he would not be able to continue in office. Uh, she was presented in the governor's office in a very quickly called press conference after this very, very strange public application process. So most Republicans were already really mad by the time Kelly Leffler was appointed. And so I think it created a situation that was would be difficult for anyone, especially you know, anyone without the kind of in front of the apparatus experience that she really did not have. You're right. But now seeing her in front of these GOP groups these years later, they're smaller groups. She's in Camilla. She's in Albany. She's mm-hmm. in North Georgia going to these small Republican groups supporting them, funding them, uh, funding polling for state senators, really doing the kind of work that I think is building toward, if she wants it, building toward a really significant run. Yeah, she is definitely a rookie no longer. As we've mentioned, she could be spending her weekends in Monaco. She's spending them in Moultrie. <laughs> you know, Go figure. Grassroots Republicans <laughs> building up, as Bill mentioned, uh, Greater Georgia, which she sees as the Republican alternative to Stacey Abrams' um, uh, group that she founded, Fair Fight Action, here in Georgia. And you're right. Kelly Leffler, uh, Burt Jones are two of the top contenders. Brad Raffensacker very well run. Attorney General Chris Carr's name is also out there. But right now, a lot of the focus is on um, Burt Jones and Kelly Leffler, in part because they are also tremendously personally wealthy and could pump a lot of their personal fortunes into this race. And that's one reason why I think that Attorney General Chris Carr has gone, and we re- we've reported before, he's gone and told activists that he is definitely going to run for governor in 2026 because he's looking to su- shore up support from donors early. Burt Jones, Kelly Leffler, they don't have to do that. They don't have to do that at all. And Kelly Leffler, it has to be said, is the largest Republican donor in the state. Her husband and she own the company that owns the New York Stock Exchange. So we are talking about immense wealth. Burt Jones' father has a lot of money, but not 
quite even that kind of money. So, yes, both of them could self-fund their campaigns um, without even denting their own family's personal fortunes. So somebody like Chris Carr or any other Republican in this state who doesn't have that kind of family wealth to rely on does have to get out early because you want to get those donors. I think also it's going to be in this race very important if Brian Kemp does eventually get behind somebody, that'll be important. But let's remember also Governor Kemp has three sessions left as governor. And it puts a really unusual pressure on the governor's office to be have to to be talking about a 2026 race um, with the lieutenant governor pushing this um, pushing this this conversation when he's got his own agenda that he wants to push and have the power to push through. Yeah, he definitely does not want to be branded a lame duck less than a year into his second term in office. Well, I, you two spend an awful lot of time covering the legislature, so I'm curious what your thoughts are. I mean, there's not ever been any real love lost between Burt Jones and Brad Raffensperger at all, but now this Burt Jones commercial really ups the ante in terms of the fight. Legislative session coming up in January. To what extent could this fight impact how legislators um, uh, uh, look at measures that involve elections or any other number of of, uh, measures that have an impact on the Secretary of State's office? Well, Brad Raffensperger has been a favorite punching bag of the Trump wing of the Republican Party since even before the 2020 election, but it ramped up when we saw Leffler and then Senator David Perdue call for Raffensperger to resign shortly after the 2020 vote. You have these two factions of the Republican Party. You've got um, the more, I guess you'd say, mainstream faction that is content with the way the laws, the election laws are now after the 2019 SB 202, the the voting rights overhaul, the voting, the election law overhaul uh, 2021. 2021. Yeah. 2021, yes. Mm-hmm. was adopted um, by Republicans. And then you've got those in um, more in Burt Jones's corner, the Republican state Senate leaders as well, who have been pushing for more restrictions, for bans on ballot drop boxes Yeah, they also have uh, the final say over the budget of the Secretary of State's office and uh, writing the laws that the Secretary of State implements. And so I think we could potentially see a whole lot of that because even in our own polling, we continue to see GOP voters still concerned about this concept of election integrity is what they're still calling it because Donald Trump on the stump every single time says it was rigged and stolen. So you've got people who believe him and continue to believe that George's elections are not trustworthy. Whether that's true or not, Republicans feel pressure to go back to their voters and say, look at all these things we've done to make it so that you're not so worried anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, meanwhile, out there somewhere in the distance is the question of whether Burt Jones will eventually uh, end up facing indictment. He was removed from the RICO case that Fonnie Willis uh, had established. He was a target of that investigation. But of course, Uh, based on what uh, the judge in the case, Robert McBurney, said was a conflict of interest with Fonnie Willis. He was removed, but we're still waiting to hear whether a special prosecutor will be named to investigate uh, Burt Jones's uh, involvement and whether he should be indicted. And, Bill, I checked on that the other day. A special prosecutor still has not been appointed, so it's still sort of in this limbo. Meanwhile, guys, on the Democratic side of the ledger, it's a lot less public infighting between the potential candidates for governor there. You know, Stacey Abrams could run for a third shot at the governor's race. Here's what she said back in January when she was asked by Drew Barrymore about her political future. I will likely run again. Yeah! I don't know why. I don't know why. <laughs> 
And then right here on Politically Georgia a few days ago, the CAB chief executive Michael Thurman talked about his potential for running for higher office. I spent most of my life, dear, trying to maneuver and get to the next election or position myself. And at some point, you have to stop thinking only about the next election. So, all right, what's best for the next generation? And if I have an opportunity where I can help Georgia be a better place, then I'm going to take it, whether it's being governor or being de facto director. And of course, other potential Democratic candidates include Jason Carter, who is the party's 2014 gubernatorial nominee, and Congressman. Congresswoman Lucy McBath, Patricia. So it could be a crowded, wide open race for governor. And it's, I know it seems early that we're already talking about it, but guess what? The they're already talking they're about already it. They're already talking about it. <laughs> we're talking about it because they're talking about it. That's how it works. Um, I think it's really important to look at how different this feels than before the 2022 elections. It felt like that period between 2020 and 2022. Anything was possible for Democrats because they had just had those huge Senate wins, huge win for the White House. It kind of felt like 2022 could be the year, which is what they used to say about the Braves. Do you remember that in the (laughs) 80s? Like this could be the year. Um, But this year, after Governor Kemp won by seven points against D.C. Abrams, who was by far the Democrats' strongest, best-funded candidate and, in fact, raised more than $100 million and still lost by seven points, it just doesn't feel like this is the opportunity that it used to. That could feel really different after the 24 elections. It could feel different once we especially get that Republican field settled a little bit more. What direction is that party going in? But you just don't feel the same kind of um, Game of Thrones approach to getting that Democratic nomination as the Republican nomination. And right a lot now. of it hinges, of course, on who wins the presidency. It would be a lot easier yeah, for exactly. Democrats to run statewide if Donald Trump or another Republican is in the White House. Well, I think it's important to say right away that apparently Stacey Abrams has already locked in the Drew Barrymore base for her <laughs> potential run uh, for re-election. Which but is not going to help that much. <laughs> <laughs> really? I'm sure you're right. But in the meantime, you know, it's interesting to hear Michael Thurman talk about vaguely talking about uh, he may want to run for governor. And in fact, we know, having talked to him, I think all of us over the years, that he's always thought that a gubernatorial race should be in his future. Um, I, my question about Michael Thurman, if it's a, if he's going to come up against the Stacey Abrams, is does he have the resources and the base to raise the kind of money that we know if Stacey Abrams jumps in, she'll have um, – and I, and I think that's an, an issue that he, he will have to think about before he decides one way or the other. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for Michael Thurman or anyone else really running whose name is not Stacey Abrams um, might be the number 130. Yeah. <laughs> Stacey Abrams raised, I think the total was close to 131, it might, but more than $130 million in last year's through, through her leadership committee and through her campaign combined, $130 million plus for this election and still lost by about seven points. But it just goes to show you how much resources it takes to run a governor campaign and a U.S. Senate campaign in Georgia now. Absolutely. And I think if we had had a situation where Democrats did better in 2022, where let's say we had a sitting Attorney General Jen Jordan or a sitting Secretary of State B. Wynn, this Georgia would feel like a state where uh, the governor's race was anyone's game in 2026 when it's not a presidential year. But coming off of the most recent um, just dominance by Republicans up and down the ticket, um, 
even though things are changing for Democrats, and we do know that they are narrowing their margins, um, as a donor looking at any other state that you could be uh, funding and investing in across the field, um, coming out of 2022 does not look like a great investment right now. Again, that could really change three years from now. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics quite like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Politically Georgia newsletter, and now we have the new Politically Georgia PM Update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work. You can get it in your inbox for free. Yes, for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter, all one word and all spelled out. AJC.com slash Politically Georgia Newsletter. Our guest today has worked on prominent campaigns across the country. Just last year, he worked on Stacey Abrams' second bid for governor of Georgia, and recently he served as communications chief for Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear, a Democrat who just won re-election in deep red Kentucky. Alex Floyd, welcome to Politically Georgia. I know your mom is probably listening to us in South Georgia, so don't be too nervous to join us. Glad to be here, guys. And, and yes, she is, uh, she is over the moon. Um, we're, we're big fans of the Floyd family. Well, thank you for joining us. Let's, so I'd like to just start with your journey. Uh, what was like going, I, I don't know if it was immediately or shortly thereafter, but pretty, very quickly jumping from Stacey Abrams' campaign last year here in a swing state like Georgia or purplish-ish like, like Georgia to work for a Democratic incumbent in a very conservative state like Kentucky. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Greg, as, as I'm sure all of you know, that can be kind of the world of campaigns is, you know, there's, uh, there's obviously wins and losses, but you still have to keep going to, you know, whatever the next, uh, the next fight is going to be. Um, you know, Andy Bashir is an incredible guy. He's been a great governor, um, and he's going to be a great governor for the next four years in Kentucky. Um, you know, I, I looked at that job uh, shortly thereafter. You know, it was an opportunity that I was really lucky uh, to be able to have. Um, and, you know, it was, uh, as, as these things often are, just kind of, you know, right place at the right time to be able to, uh, to work for his campaign. Um, you know, and uh, here we are, you know, uh, basically a year after, um, you know, obviously, you know, uh, uh, an outcome that I'm very excited about, but also something that was a result of a lot of hard work from a lot of folks uh, on an incredible team to say nothing of the governor himself and not just the campaign he ran. Uh, but frankly, when we talk about, you know, these kind of races, um, you know, the, the kind of administration he led and the kind of connection he developed with the people of Kentucky that, uh, that ultimately allowed him to be reelected um, in, a, in a much more red state. Uh, you know, we see that with incumbents, I think, in, in different capacities at different times. But Andy Bashir is someone who I think kind of, you know, really stands at this whole other level of someone who's really built this authentic connection with voters um, that, you know, really allowed him to have this connection that, uh, that helped him get reelected in a Trump plus 26, I believe, uh, state, which is, you know, as a Democrat, 26. uh, just truly incredible. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Alex, it's Patricia Murphy. How you doing? I'm doing great, Patricia. Good. Um, and it's great to, to hear from you too. Of course. <laughs> um, so listen, I think our, 
audience would really want to know. We we heard what the national media attributed Bashir's win to, which was this really breakthrough ad on abortion. Um, but I think it's important for our audience to also know that the Bashir name is sort of a standalone brand of its own in Kentucky. His dad was governor um, just four years before he became governor. Um, but he has charted such a unique political path for himself. Um, and I think coming out against a number of uh, issues um, that are things that Democrats typically support, but in such a Republican state, it you need to have your own way of doing that. Why do you think that y'all won this race? Yeah, and, and you know, that's that's a great point you, you just made there, Patricia. It's obviously, you know, the Bashir name is a, is a name in Kentucky. Um, but, you know, I'm actually looking at one of our campaign signs right now, and it's a big word that just says Andy. Uh, you know, that was the kind of um, relationship he developed. You know, I mean, the Bashir's on the sign, but it's down there on the disclaimer. So, you know, I, I think that says a lot in and of itself, um, you know, of just the kind of brand he was able to build. You know, as, as you all know, um, that's not necessarily even common with every popular incumbent governor. You know, uh, you know, you don't necessarily have someone who's who's Brian, um, you know, or uh, or, you know, something else of that nature. You're kind of calling them by their first name because they feel that comfortable. But time and time again, that's what we saw uh, with voters, um, you know, and it didn't really matter where they were in the state. It didn't really even matter, you know, what their partisan identification was when it came to, you know, other races, federal races, how they previously voted. Uh, you know, they saw the governor as Andy and they saw him that way um, because he had built up, I think, that relationship of trust and integrity, not just through challenges like COVID, but, you know, through other historic natural disasters. There was flooding in eastern Kentucky, you know. Uh, an ancestrally democratic region, obviously, uh, as well as tornadoes in the West, you know, a polar plunge. I mean, you know, he was a governor who was faced with a historic amount of challenges. And I think his handling of those, uh, in addition to obviously, you know, uh, things like COVID that I, I do think also sort of, uh, you know, showed that he was someone that folks could count on and trust on when it came to accurate information. It really created a bomb with the voters that I think it's hard to to be able to beat. And the other thing I'd add on to that, too, is it's even harder to sort of break that bond that someone has with the voters, the relationship of trust and integrity they've built up when the other side's ads are not running things saying stuff like, well, Andy Bashir is a, is a great guy, but maybe just here, here and here. But, you know, rather trying to do these very, very hardline attacks, um, you know, talking about things like, you know, trans kids in a way that was really, you know, came across as over the line and, and just not believable, um, just on a whole host of cultural issues, in fact. Uh, you know, it just it, it didn't jive with what voters already thought about Governor Bashir. And uh, when you're trying to do that with that kind of relationship of trust and integrity, even with folks who may disagree with the governor on issues like, you know, abortion or, you know, issues like, uh, you know, trans youth and sports or whatever they may be, you know, they're able to have a relationship of trust. And uh, you, you can't just break that down with a couple of spots saying, you know, the most nasty things you can come up with about him, like he's just any other national Democrat. Alex, it's Bill Nygut. I think I'm correct in saying that um, uh, Bashir increased his margin of victory. I think he beat Matt Bevan by just 5,000 votes or so, and yet beat uh, Cameron, Daniel Cameron, uh, his opponent this time around, some 67,000 votes. So he really has increased his popularity in the state. But, but let me ask you about a couple of uh, elements of all that. Uh, number one, Democrats, get, tell me if I'm wrong, Democratic turnout in the state was much stronger than Republican uh, turnout uh, was uh, in the state. And the other element that I thought 
think is fascinating is a certain kind of discipline that a candidate like Bashir exhibits. While Cameron repeatedly kind of nationalized the race, bringing Donald Trump's name into play uh, frequently, Bashir, much like Brian Kemp on the Republican side here in Georgia in 2022, said, no, we're going to talk about issues that matter to the people of the state. We're not going to get caught up in this um, national uh, fervor, Trump versus Biden or whatever. Yes? Yes. You know, Bill, that's that's a great point. And, you know, one, I should say, first and foremost, yes, you know, the governor uh, did increase. He won by about five points, which, you know, in a state like Kentucky is, I mean, that's that's huge for a Democrat. Um, but, you know, a, a big part of that, I think, just like you said, was focusing on an actual record of, you know, success of economic development, of actual concrete things he could point to. Um, and that meant that it wasn't just that, you know, you saw, you know, an increased margin with the Democratic base or, you know, that there was an increased margin in suburban and collar counties. There were those things, too. You actually saw the governor flip counties out in those eastern coal fields that he actually had lost in 19. Um, so actually, you know, making inroads with voters who I think, you know, the traditional logic is, oh, well, those are folks that, you know, we, we can only really we can only really lose. You know, those, those times are gone. And I think a big part of that was not just, you know, obviously response to natural disasters, particularly flooding in the east. And, and folks felt like he had been there and showed up. Um, but also, you know, believed the, the record he was talking about because it was real. You know, the lowest unemployment rate in state history, you know, funding delivered for massive infrastructure projects. Um, you know, Kentucky has its own mountain parkway that was being four laned as a result of Governor Bashir. Uh, you know, not to mention just, you know, job growth and uh, investment that he was bringing to different communities, um, you know, working with both parties to do so, I might add, too. I mean, that that record was real. It was something he was able to communicate. And uh, I think if you're an incumbent and you're able to successfully communicate that, and again, having that pre-existing relationship of trust with voters, you know, it's, it's just not believable if someone comes in and says, well, actually, this guy is just like every other, you know, Democrat, you may feel differently about, you know, this is just, you know, trying to paint this caricature of someone that folks just didn't believe. Um, and, you know, there might have been other ways, who knows, to, to try to overcome that. But it's, it's not something you can overcome by just kind of campaigning and caricature and trying to paint something that's just not there and that voters just, you know, don't fundamentally think is, is the guy you're talking about. You know, it's Andy was a big thing you'd hear a lot, and it was true. We're here with Alex Floyd on Politically Georgia on WABE. Alex was a top aide to Stacey Abrams last year and to Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir this year. Alex, for many voters, abortion was also on the ballot uh, in, in, in the election earlier this month. Uh, the Bashir campaign targeted or featured a powerful ad from Hadley Duvall, a survivor of rape, that got a lot of national attention, I'm sure a lot of local attention. What role do you think the end of Roe v. Wade played in this election? And how could it affect races in battlegrounds like Georgia next year? Yeah, well, you know, first, I should say from the get-go that, you know, Hadley, she's an incredible person, incredibly brave and incredibly courageous. And her choice to share her story, I think, is is not just inspiring, but it's really, I think it shows what the stakes are right now in this kind of a fight. Um you know, one thing that, you know, the governor would say on the trail, and it was, it was true, is, you know, we're in this world right now where it's not really pro-choice, pro-life, whatever the label you may want to put behind yourself is. In the Dobbs world, it's really a choice of, are you on the side of these basic exceptions or, or are you not? You know, we had folks who may consider themselves pro-life, but still think there should be these very basic exceptions um, for, you know, survivors like uh, like Hadley and, and folks who, you know, come after. I mean, that just... That, that just seems like such a basic point, I think, for so many folks. And, uh, you know, one thing that's gotten attention around that ad that I think is important is 
it was not an ad that was targeted just toward, you know, the Louisville market or the Lexington market or, you know, trying to target to, you know, suburban Cincinnati voters up in northern Kentucky. That ad ran statewide. It ran in rural markets or ran in urban markets. And that's because it was effective and it made an impact on showing, uh, I think, what the stakes are on this issue now. Uh, you know, I, I know that one thing that got talked about plenty in, in 2022 is how this issue maybe affected races. And there was a sense that you would sometimes hear from Republicans that, well, you know, it definitely was an issue in 2022, but we sort of, you know, we, we, we got past that, you know, now we're in a different place. I think what we've seen, particularly, you know, not just in Kentucky in 2023, but ballot measures we saw in, in Ohio, and my guess is in, in 2024 going forward, is, you know, Republicans, you know, got what they have said for years they wanted, which is that they got to overturn Roe. It's a promise they've made to their base for decades. But now we are in this position where they actually have to live with that, not just in one election cycle, but I think in election cycles going forward. So, you know, I, I, I think that this issue won't just continue to make an impact because we've already seen that it has even beyond that first cycle. Um, but it's something Republicans are going to have to come up with a better answer for. You know, what we saw a lot of the time is Republicans kind of try to dodge and weave. They don't want to break these promises they've made to maybe the more, you know, uh, maybe extreme members of their base on this issue, particularly around these exceptions. That was something that Daniel Cameron ran into a lot, is not being able to square that circle. Uh, but, you know, they, they are also, I'm sure, well aware that the position that they have here is just not that popular. Um, so not just for, you know, states beyond Georgia, but certainly in Georgia, uh, I think Republicans are going to have to answer for that for a while. The, the six-week ban that we have here uh, doesn't go quite as far as Kentucky's, which was, you know, really a blanket. But it's still way more extreme than I think most voters are comfortable with, particularly voters in a state like Georgia, and particularly the kind of voters who we kind of see fall into that category of maybe Camp Warnock folks or folks who maybe sat out the last election or whatever it may be that, you know, this is just not something they're comfortable with. And they need a better answer from Republicans than just trying to change the message on that. You need an actual response for voters. Alex, along with um, Bashir's support for some abortion rights, I think what was so striking about Yul's victory is that on guns, he was also in favor of red flag laws. On education, he was against vouchers. I, I think there is an assumption in Georgia that taking those positions can really sink a statewide candidacy um, in a red state, a state as conservative as Kentucky. How did y'all manage to thread that needle with Republican voters who did support him? Yeah, and, and it's a great point on, on all those issues, too, that, you know, I think that Governor Bashir is someone who led with values. And when you do that and you have that relationship and you're up front and want to explain those positions, I think voters are much more willing to listen. Now, obviously, I have somewhat of a bias and that I think these issues can be things that, you know, appeal to a wide range of voters in the electorate, even folks who maybe don't consider themselves traditionally, uh, you know, Democratic voters. Um, but, you know, I think a big fundamental part of that is voters have to feel like you're being honest with them. Uh, and they had that with Governor Bashir, And they didn't just have it because it was an act. They had it because he was honest with them. He was upfront about his positions. He was upfront about where he stood on these issues. Uh, he was willing to sit down and answer the tough questions with voters and with media. You know, we, we, I remember we sat down for a newspaper editorial endorsement interview that our opponent just wouldn't do. He didn't want to sit down for it. And, you know, I, I think the, the assumption was, oh, well, these there might be some tough questions and then there might be some issues you have to answer. And, you know, his, his response was to answer them. So I, I think that's a, a big part of this, right, is voters like candidates who seem authentic, who seem genuine, who seem like they're actually talking about what their values are and they're not just trying to, you know, squirm or message test or poll test their way to something that's just going to squeak them by. 
Um, and I think voters respect your answers more as a result of that. And they, I think, certainly did with Governor Bashir. Alex, um, in the segment before you joined us, we talked about the potential for Stacey Abrams to launch another gubernatorial bid in uh, 2026. What lessons do you think uh, she can take from the Bashir victory in Kentucky. What was she not? I mean, obviously she was a challenger running against an incumbent. And with all due respect to the fact that you all ran a great campaign in a red state, incumbents are harder to beat. But what didn't she manage to do in 2022? And what must she do to try to win in 2026? Yeah, you know, and that's, and you know, I, I totally accept that. But, you know, look, incumbents are difficult to beat. I think, um, you know, running in that Trump 26 plus state, it does it does lessen the advantage somewhat. But I, but I do hear you because it is. I have worked on race. <laughs> and he beat Bevin. More incumbents yeah, than against. Yeah. yeah. He did. Yeah. Yes. I was going to say, to my knowledge, there are, I think, four incumbent governors who have lost um, since, I believe, 2018 or 2017. Um, you know, and, and one of them was Bevin in Kentucky. Well, let me ask um, it a different no, so, way, though. I mm-hmm. apologize. I don't mean to interrupt you because more to the no, point no, no, is, is my question about what could a Stacey Abrams, should she choose to run again in 2026, learn from the way you all ran the Bashir campaign in Kentucky? Sure. Well, you know, I, I think every campaign is different. Every election is different, even when, you know, it is, uh, you know, an incumbent versus a challenger like this. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, hindsight is obviously always 2020. There were a lot of things, I think, that in a different context, potentially against a different candidate, um, are always powerful messages. And, and some things that I think back on in that campaign, um, that I do think broke through, even if they weren't, you know, enough is obviously, you know, the, the, the message that we had about this idea that, you know, Georgia can be an economic powerhouse, but, you know, pursuing this kind of radical social agenda on abortion, on guns, whatever it may be, that actually isn't something that complements that it puts it at risk. Uh, it was something we saw. We, we had some great examples of that in the campaign, but I think that, that was something that, you know, we could see voters had concerns over. I think, you know, it's just something you really have to pound into the messaging. Um, so I think that whoever runs next in 2026 will be able to have that sort of message of, look, you know, we're not opposed to the, <laughs> the you know, the strong economic climate that we've worked hard to build. And I might add worked hard to build along with, you know, the White House and with a great, um, you know, Senate congressional delegation that we now have in Georgia. Um, but, you know, pursuing the kind of policies that you see the base of the Republican Party want to kind of pursue, whether on abortion, whether on voting in Georgia in particular, this kind of election denialism, it threatens that. It puts that business at risk. It threatens the idea that folks want to, you know, move to Georgia, that folks who grew up here want to stay and come back to Georgia too. Um, So I I think that that's a really important and powerful message we saw in Kentucky that can, you know, also make a difference when you're talking about what kind of state you want to live in. Do you want to focus on this, you know, these issues of growth, these issues of making sure our economy is on the right track, our schools are on the right track, or do you want to be constantly relitigating every election from an election denialist point of view um, that you kind of see with some of these Republican candidates already on the ballot in 20, or looking at being on the ballot in 2026? Uh, It it, it just, I think it creates a real contrast, and particularly when you look at an open seat like we're going to have, that's just going to be a very different contest for Republicans to try to run. Um, You know, they're not going to be able to necessarily do the same thing they tried to do in 2022. Alex, before we let you go and take a quick break, I do have to ask you a very quick question. You were a member of Stacey Abrams' inner circle. Uh, Do you think there's a chance that she runs in 2026 again, or do you think she's going to look for other offices or look for something else to do? You know, I I will leave that decision totally with her. It's obviously (laughs) hers to make, um, you know, and, and 
As far as I know, she's made no other announcements on it. So, you know, that's, that's, that's her call. Um, you know, and I, I look forward to whatever the field of 2026 candidates looks like up and down the ballot. There's a lot of great Democratic talent in Georgia across the board, and I think it's going to be a strong ticket, you know, from top to bottom. That's a very good Democratic operative answer. <laughs> well, thank you so <laughs> much. It's the truth. Yeah. There you go. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Alex Floyd, a top aide to both Stacey Abrams and to Andy Bashir in Kentucky. Uh, still to come on Politically Georgia, Governor Kemp is intensifying his support behind the planned police training center in Atlanta. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Every morning, delivered to your email, you can get Georgia's must-read newsletter from the AJC Politics team. The new Politically Georgia morning newsletter is your daily jolt of news, insights, and analysis from Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, Adam Van Bremer, and me, Greg Bluestein, all housed under our new brand, Politically Georgia. There's no better time to subscribe at AJC.com slash newsletters. Thank you for being here as we look forward to 2024. So guys, I rushed to the beautiful WABE studios here in Midtown-ish Atlanta this morning from the Metro Atlanta Chamber meeting in downtown Atlanta, where Governor Kemp used about six minutes of his eight-minute speech to promote the Public Safety Training Center and call on politicians of all parties, of all persuasions, to support the $90 million project. Patricia, these were some of the most assertive marks I've heard the governor make, and they were unique in that they made a direct link to Georgia's economy and the economic vitality of Atlanta to the fate of this complex. Yeah, and I think we said earlier this week on this radio show, we talked a little bit about the polling that Governor Kemp had done through his Georgians First Committee and uh, got the results back. And I was interested to see that one of the questions they even bothered asking was about the Public Safety Training Center and asked for both statewide support, 5th Congressional District support, which is where it is, and also DeKalb County support. All of those metrics showed a majority of voters in all of those areas support the Public Safety Training Center. When we talk to both Democrats and Republicans behind the scenes, they see that this is a very clear political issue. When you talk to residents, it it is not at all clear when you talk to elected officials, when you talk to activists, when you get into a lot of the video that we've seen. But when the protest this week had a defund, a defend the forest, defund the police sign, I got a text from a Republican operative immediately, immediately <laughs> and said, I didn't know it was going to be this easy. So the politics of it are very clear. Also, if you talk to the mayor, if you talk to police officers, if you talk to most people, they don't oppose that training center and Mayor Dickens and the police and the fire department want it very badly so i i I would certainly take the governor at face value he believes that having a modern police and fire training center is of economic interest to the entire state but certainly to metro atlanta at the same time as patricia points out there's an important political component to this it is kind of stunning 
to see in 2023, we once again are seeing defund the police uh, signs at protests because we Democrats had hoped that that notion had been put behind them and had worked very hard in the 2022 cycle to say, no, no, we don't want to defund the police. That's not us talking right now. But here's the issue. Governor Kemp talks about it, as you said, for six of eight minutes today because he recognizes that right now supporting that center is advantageous to Republicans. Mayor Dickens continues to be on an island with very few other Democrats on that island with him supporting the construction of this center. And I think he certainly would accept the fact he's got to get more people on board on his side of the aisle. Yeah, he does have the support of the majority of the city council. The city council has voted twice for this. When you talk to a number of those members, they are very, very supportive of it. Uh, They are also getting death threats over it from the opposition. And so there is, um, in a way, a chilling effect of this. Also, once we saw really important religious leaders come out um, in favor of the concept of a referendum on this and of sort of slowing the progress on this, it, it made it very tricky to come out fully in favor of the training center. You certainly don't want to go up against Ebenezer Baptist Church. Yeah, we have certainly seen some Democratic state leaders be very hesitant about yeah. endorsing this. Um, Senator Ossoff, for one, he endorsed the idea of a police training center, but not specifically this one. Uh, we've also heard, seen many Democrats condemn the, the protests that have turned violent, uh, you know, over the over the last two years, there have been some demonstrations that have turned chaotic and violent, um, but but also have condemned, you know, the attorney general, Chris Carr, and his decision to charge some of the demonstrators with domestic terrorism and other charges like that. So they, they, we've seen Democrats kind of kind of try to balance this really tricky political uh, uh, fine line here. But meanwhile, as you as we mentioned, Mayor Dickens has staked, essentially has staked his first term in office on this complex. And we heard at today's Metro Atlanta Chamber Breakfast, uh, Governor Kemp saying, singling out Mayor Dickens for being, quote, right on this issue since day one. So a lot of that speech was devoted to praising Mayor Dickens. And Patricia, I got a text almost immediately from a Democrat in the room saying, is he endorsing Mayor Dickens for governor in 2026? He's not. But it was very warm words for Atlanta's mayor, kind of giving him some backup that he might not necessarily, he maybe he wants, maybe he doesn't, but he got a lot of backup from the governor. <laughs> A camp endorsement uh, of a Dickens 26 campaign would be the plot twist we've all been waiting for. (laughs) (laughs) I know I have been. Um, However, yeah, I mean, there does need to be more vocal public support. And what I've been looking for are individual business leaders to come out and say, we need this. Now, we've seen the Metro Chamber um, supportive of it. We have seen kind of a coalition of businesses um, and business leaders supportive of it as well. But I think there do need to be more individual voices out there saying, this. we want this, we need it. Um, lots of cities around the state have their own training centers. We want well-trained police. We want them to be trained in de-escalation, de-escalation tactics. We want them to be trained in mental health um, uh, kind of rescues, if you will, when they go into a situation where it's domestic violence or, or mental health crisis. So all of those trainings happen at a training center. Right now, police are renting classrooms at Perimeter Center College. That That is just, that's wild. Um, the fire department was doing their trainings 
in Publix parking lots until Publix said you can't do that anymore. So they, they need a place to train where it is. I, I honestly can't tell if the if it's a it's a it's a collection of objections to where it is that it's happening. Who's pushing it? Who's against it? There, there's so many different pieces mm-hmm. moving all the time. I think that's what makes it confu- environmentalists. That's what makes all of this so difficult to pin down. We we know um, we talked about it on the show the other day that the Atlanta Police Department has now uh, put out a video uh, that is available to people. That they say they want it for people in the community around the uh, construction to see just what's already been accomplished on this site. They talk about a couple of things that have already been built. But it, but it occurs to me, and, and I th- we've talked about this frequently um, while this issue has been so heated, I'm still not certain that anyone in favor of the training center has done the kind of job that needs to be done to explain very specifically why this is an important facility. How does it play into the crime rate in the city of Atlanta and how this can be a response to that? How does it play into the question of uh, those protesters who believe this is a way to um, militarize police even more? No, it's not. This is what it's really all about. And and I, I continue to believe that that effort has just fallen short. Well, Dickens did a whole show with us about just that, yes. but he needs some backup. That's what well, that's it feels right. like to me. He needs some backup. Um, now, the backup from Governor Brian Kemp, I don't know if that helps, actually. I, I don't know if it hurts, but well, we'll find out. I got a, I, and I did get a note from um, a Democratic official in that room who's very supportive of the project saying exactly that. This is kind of the backup we don't need. I, I just <laughs> want to throw in, while I'm delighted to think that uh, the mayor on this show could persuade you know hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, I think it's a bigger campaign than doing interviews here and there. Where is the? Is there an advertising campaign? A marketing campaign? Is the Atlanta Police Foundation have any role, given that this has been their baby from the start, in helping to establish? why this is such a crucial facility. And we might see that coming up because, listen, I mean, one of the messages the governor said was, we must, and I'm quoting him here, we must support the Atlanta Public Safety Center. And by we, I mean Republicans, Democrats, and everyone in between. That was a clear signal to the business community. Mm-hmm. Now, the opponents of this project say we must have a vote. They say they've they've collected tens of thousands of signatures to force a referendum on the issue. That that should be the final say. We're not sure. There's all sorts of legal limbo right now um, involving that referendum. But Bill, to your point, that is where we might see the next phase. If this mm-hmm. referendum ends up going forward, we might see a multi-million dollar, tens of millions of dollars, even who knows, campaign back and forth over this issue being played out in the airwaves, in media, you you name it. Um, guys, I do want to note, on uh, changing the subject very quickly, uh, that on yesterday's show, we talked a little bit about, uh, with Tamar Hallerman, on key updates in the Trump-Fulton County case. She reported that Fonnie Willis is, uh, and we reported about Judge McAfee and, and the uh, issues that we're having with the leaked videos. Well, our colleague David Wickert reports that Judge McAfee will draft an order protecting some evidence from pretrial disclosure. We're again talking about that leaked video of proffers involving four of the code former co-defendants in the Donald Trump case, Patricia, who have since uh, taken pleaded guilty to lesser charges. But you know, a, a, a defense attorney admitted he had already leaked witness interviews to the news media. 
now the judge is trying to protect further leaks from getting out there to the media. And this is one of the challenges with this RICO case, because with 19 defendants, you have 19 different sets of counsel and 19 different strategies of how to advance your own client's path forward. Sometimes that means leaking video about the other defendants, which was not authorized. I think we really, though, also ought to point out that in the hearing yesterday in front of Judge McAfee about setting limits on what discovery materials can be released, um, news organizations argued for release of as many uh, pieces of discovery as possible because it's in the public's interest to do so. McAfee didn't uh, buy that argument, um, but we should say, in sense to be transparent, that our attorney thought that we should have more materials released. That we in the media like leaks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, another quick note, uh, Fannie Willis is moving to revoke the bond of defendant Harrison Floyd. Willis says that Floyd's social media posts targeted and intimidated witnesses, uh, including Brad Raffensperger and former Fulton County poll worker Ruby Freeman. That is all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 in the morning. Or look for Politically Georgia in your favorite podcast app sometime around 1 or noon each day. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow at 10 for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.